You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about generating alpha with a rising rates strategy. There's a lot going on in the world, right? Brings to mind the uh, ancient Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. George, uh, I think we're in interesting times right now. Is that fair? We are certainly in interesting times. This is something that we hoped it would never happen again, the recent uh, debacle in the uh, regional banks, but we could talk about that. Um, let me give you a quick background on myself. Uh, spent 35 years in the financial markets. From hey, George, George, sorry to interrupt. I didn't even give our audience your name. George oh. Lukacs, Global Head of Distribution at Folio Beyond. I'm sorry, I have to introduce my guests. So let me start with that. So this is George, everyone. Give us your background. Where, how did you get into finance? Before we get into everything crazy going on in the world, where, where did it start for you? Well, it started with, with the need to, to earn money, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> coming, coming from immigrant parents is probably an important thing to do. Uh, but I started as a foreign exchange trader uh, at Citibank and moved out to the mortgage-backed securities area for a number of years uh, at Merrill Lynch. Uh, I also ran risk for a large macro hedge fund uh, and then was one of the founding partners of hedgefund.net, which is one of the first digital platforms for hedge funds. And then um, spent time at a group called Mercury Capital Advisors, where I was a partner and that was a large placement agency for private equity and hedge funds. So uh, I've been with Folio Beyond for about two years, and uh, Folio Beyond was founded in 2017. And it's uh, we provide solutions and we manage money uh, that integrate factor-based models. And that's basically risk models, looking at correlation, looking at stress testing. And we constrain our models depending on the risks that our customers want. In 2021, late 2021, we and myself and my partners sat around and said, you know what? Times have changed. We see inflationary uh, problems on the horizon. We believe that the Fed was going to attempt a more responsible approach towards interest rates because we are at that time steering very close, uh, uh, very close to zero interest rates. And we developed an ETF, which is a, in, in a way really a liquid hedge fund, but it's an ETF. Uh, that rises in value as interest rates go up. So our returns in 2022 were 33.6%. And at, towards the end of 2022, we, we increased our dividend from about 4% to 7%. So we have a 33% return. We have no correlation to the bond or very low correlation to the bond and a, st a stock market. And we provide a 7% dividend. So, George, no. I, I just stop you there. You and your partner, are you lucky that you have very good timing? Or are you both geniuses or is it a combination of you're lucky and your geniuses? Well, my partner, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, our partners are, are very, my partners are very well seasoned as well. Um, young Lim, he's been in the market for 35 years. He's our CEO. And Dean Smith, not the basketball coach, but Dean Smith is our strategist and uh, he's our chief marketing officer. And he's the one that's been managing a lot of what we've been doing. And we have a uh, chief administrative officer called Niraj Prasher. So the four of us really sat down and thought very hard about it. I don't think we were lucky, but luck always does play a part in it. Specifically, the 
quickness with which the Fed raised rates. And what we found very interesting is that people were still living in a ZERP world, zero interest rate world. And they didn't believe that the Fed was serious. They thought that the Fed would always go back to a QE type of uh, methodology. George, aren't they still there? I feel like people are still there. They still think it's just around the corner. We'll, we'll be yeah, back yeah. there. You hear it on, you know, all the major broad, uh, you know, broadcasting out there, CNBC, Bloomberg, you hear about, yes, there it's around the corner. And I call them pivot seekers. These are people who have a hard time dealing with a rising rate environment. And what we're trying to do is establish a normalized yield curve. There's no reason for our interest rates to be lower than inflation for as long as they have been. And people will you know, cut and divide and look at the different statistics, but we still have 6% inflation as the CPI numbers came out today. Mm. And our 10-year treasury is at 3.8%. Now the average 10-year average uh, yield over the last 50 years, if you take out the Volcker years, is probably about 4.6%. If you put in the Volcker years, you have about six and a quarter percent. So we're looking, and we always believe that you'd get a normalized yield curve where savers who were disenfranchised the last 50 years can come back into the market. Well, that's interesting to me conceptually. I mean, I was born in 83, and I just take it as a fact of life that unless I take on a substantial amount of risk with my investable savings, that Uncle Sam is going to tax the living you know what out of me in the form of inflation and you know even talking about those the 10-year yield of let's say four percent well if it's not in an ira i'm paying taxes right i'm paying uh taxes even on that gross nominal yield which isn't even positive in real terms it's even it's already negative in real terms but then i still have to pay taxes on it so i almost take it as a fact of life that i'm going to be losing money every year if i'm invested in 10-year treasuries and even frankly probably corporate like high quality corporates maybe is where i begin to eke out a positive return do, is are my expectations wrong am i do i just have like stockholm syndrome from you know <laughs> being the age that i am well um i i think that your generation certainly knew nothing but a fed backstop the fed would cure all ills mm. But there's no doubt what you say is true. Inflation is the great destroyer of wealth. And it has been, and it is right now until we get a more normalized yield curve. So when we saw that uh, there was a definitive move by the Fed towards QT, and we saw and what we believe we were in or entering a secular bear market in bonds, these things are not you know, resolved in a year or two, we thought there's going to be a long-term approach to it. And by the, by the way, as you said earlier, Andy, the fact that people are still looking around the corner for the pivot tells me that this is going to be a much longer-term play. So that's why we developed RISER, R-I-S-R is the uh, acronym for the ETF uh, that has, you know, produced some very, very good results. But more importantly, it's a diversifier. There's not enough diverse uh, portfolios out there. And if I may just quickly go into, you know, I, I was looking at some statistics and when I saw, you know, what percentage of insure, uninsured deposits um, SVB had, it was 82%. The cost of interest bearing deposits was highest in the industry. And the percentage of securities with 10 years or more duration 
was as high as 79%. Having said that, it's important to note that there are other regional banks and even some major uh, banks that have statistics not that far from that. Now, are they, okay, and I want to talk about Silicon Valley Bank. Are those, I guess, are those banks in trouble? I mean, isn't wasn't the whole point of Dodd-Frank, they have to like mark to market. So is there... Is there transparency around this issue? Is it is it hiding in plain sight? Like, does anybody besides George know about this? Uh, you know, or, or... I, I think the management knows about this, but the management basically was irresponsible. Uh, as we, they were speculative, and uh, I'm not very uh, enthused about this lending facility program that they put up, which basically means that they they can put up their collateral of their bonds at par value. So they have one and a half, two percent bonds, and now the interest rates three and a half, four percent, but they still get one hundred percent on the dollar for that, despite the fact that the price of those bonds have gone down. I that, see. in a way, is a you want to call it a semi bailout. That's fine, but it's close to a bailout in, in, in many ways. And there are numerous other banks that have these, these kind of problems with uh, length of duration in their in their portfolio, the cost of interest, and uninsured deposits. These three banks, Silvergate, uh, Silvergate, Signature, and SVP, are certainly not alone. And the numbers are out there right now. People should be looking at the numbers and asking questions. Why haven't something that can so simple to do, hedge interest rate risk, why hasn't it been done? Well, it's, 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 it's interesting. It, you know, your logic, it's a little bit, it's not really contrarian. Right. Like you're the, the logic that you're using. I'm like, well, no, that's just common sense. And I was asking you, you know, kind of joking a little is your, is your timing lucky or are you a genius? But the fact of the matter is you almost don't have to be a genius when, when yields are virtually zero and, or they're highly negative in real terms. And I guess let me pat myself on the back because I barely even recognize that I've done this. But about two years ago, I brought all that my allocation to bonds down across all my portfolios with index fund or ETFs. And honestly, for a long time, I've been in short term, you know, two, three year municipal bonds because I just didn't see any point to getting a hundred basis points more of yield or whatever to take on all of that risk. Right. And it's like whether it's whether it was a medium term, short term, or long term. It's like the yield's all negative. Well, I'm not taking the risk then to earn another 50 base. So I'm like, and I'm like, I'm not a genius. That just was common sense. But you could have a side business as a consultant to all these regional banks. <laughs> that would, well, that, they would have listened to you. You know, it's it, you know, we feel sometimes like we're really just you know hitting our hand against a sidewalk. Please, you know, one way or another, hedge your interest rate risk. You know. It, the, the, the phrase, don't fight the Fed, didn't mean just when rates were going down. It also means don't mm. fight the Fed as rates are going up. And they seemed intent. They didn't seem intent at the beginning, the first six months of last year. But they seem intent right now that they're going to squash inflation or, as they put it, break something first. Nothing's broken yet. Uh, now, this SVP signature. So well, let's talk about that, because in my mind, Silicon Valley Bank, it could be a game changer. Like the one thing. I, I agree with you. They're between rock. The Fed was already between rock and a hard place. And I agree with you. They basically said, we're going to beat inflation. We're not going to fully beat it. We're, we're going to at least get it back into the force. 
Yep. At least we're going to get back to four and a half or, or whatever. And then we can kind of squint and say, well, we mostly beat it. Job well done, whatever. But I think the one thing that could change their calculus is if people start to feel like the entire financial system now is shaky, that's going to override potentially. And I'm not saying we're there yet, but if we did get to that kind of a point where people are fearing systemic collapse, doesn't that just override everything else from the Fed's point of view? It, it, it does. If you're putting it in that kind of cataclysmic uh, type of <laughs> area, you're absolutely right. But let's back up a little bit. This is a people business. The CEO of uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank pressed Congress very hard in 2018 to loosen regulations. Mm. Let's begin with that. He also, by the way, sold a bunch of his, uh, his uh, equity in February. Now, yep. this collapse happened in two or three days. And it was obvious why it happened. You know, we just have to read the papers. But yeah, I, I think that the Fed, if the Fed would raise uh, the, if the Fed was not to raise uh, this month zero, they would show an absolute no confidence vote in the economy. 25 basis points. They'd say, you know, I'm a little worried. 50 basis points, eh? If they were to raise 50 basis points, they would say, we feel strongly that the financial system is in good shape. Frankly, they should probably do 75 basis points in weight. But they're not going to do that. They have so much political pressure coming on them from different members of Congress, Senate, et cetera, that they're going to, you know, try to find again, try to walk a fine line. You're, you're talking sure. about the, the political pressure on them is to whip inflation. Yeah, I think the political pressure on them is not only on one side is to whip inflation. On the other side is stop breaking things by raising rates. I was reading, Andy, I was reading an, a, a well-known economist from a well-known university saying, the Fed should do an analysis on what 25 or 50 basis points would do to certain banks' balance sheets. Really? Is it, that, is it their job to do that? It's the bank's job to protect themselves from rising rates. And there's numerous tools with which they can do that. Well, George, it's easy. We just need to give the Fed seven different mandates and have them pursue all seven mandates at the same time. Totally simple, right? I mean, it's- exactly. Exactly. Their job, look, their job is, is financial stability, quash inflation, get back to running the business uh, the way they expect uh, the rest of the banks to run their business. And that is in a much safer way, not a speculative way. By the way, just, just not just doing nothing that so many of these banks, so many of these RIAs with their investors portfolio, I call it portfolio malpractice. You know, you, you, all you have to do is move your duration down to one or two years like you did. You moved into municipal bonds one or two years. That's fine. We're not saying you have zero duration. I mean, that's my ultimate recommendation, but given what I see going forward, but you have to really assess who these people are who are running these banks. And it's very disappointing to see that in 2023. I felt like I was in the 1980s again. Well, is this... Okay, let me let me make the the maybe the devil's advocate argument or the, maybe the bull case for bonds. You know, bonds have taken a big hit. They are they're down, you know, big, you know, yields are are way higher than they were. Yep. So, isn't this the time when I should be buying bonds? I mean, it's actually the first time literally the first time in my life when bonds are like even conceptually, and again, you almost, I guess I have to ignore inflation, which I can't, but where bonds are even in like an abstract sense, desirable at all. Previously, I think in an ab- yes, yes. In an abstract sense, I think you're right. But I have 
papers that I have saved over the last year from well-known money managers, well-known RIAs who are saying 2.75%, a great time to put your money into 10-year treasuries at 3%. This is a great time to put your money in 10-year treasuries. Same at 3.5%. Just do it. 4% corporates. I think we're going a lot higher for a lot, a lot of different so, so you're saying, no, Andy, you maybe you want to wait for 9 or 10% yields, and then that's the real buying entry. I don't know about 9 or 10%, but I, you know, we don't have Volcker in the, in the, in the hot seat right now. Yeah. But I think that you know the, the, the number that nobody likes to talk about, 6, is very real. Okay. The 6 number, I call it. So hmm, how long can this last? You know, if we are in a, a secular, I mean, was it, would you, okay, first of all, was it fair to say we were in like a 40 year bull market for bonds roughly? No doubt about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We had bumps along the way, but it was a 40 year bull market. You know, we had 94, 99, a couple of times where there was some retracements, but we were in a 40 year bull market. Secular bear markets or secular bull markets are not a two or three year period. I think we're in for a more sustained period of time. We're not going to see reversal. And when the Fed says, we're going back to two, you know, our goal is 2% inflation. What they don't say is how long it's going to take to get there. Now, there's a Bank of America longitudinal study that looked at once inflation pierced 5%, and you can get that online anywhere. They said it took up to 10 years to get back to 2% inflation. Well, we pierced 5%. We stayed there. And, and you know, it's amazing to me when I watch the, uh, well, CNBC or Bloomberg, they're always parsing the data, looking for the positive, which is fine. And I guess that's they're playing to their audience. The audience wants something very positive to hear about, but they have to be realistic as well. It's okay. Well, can, can this, yeah, yeah, George. I mean, can this, hmm, can this bear market be forty years? I mean, and and also the assumption that we get back to two percent. I mean, I can see tightness in the labor market lasting until I am a great grandfather or frankly lasting beyond that with some of the structural issues, educational issues, demographic issues. I don't really see that going away. I'm glad you brought that up. I thought I was the only one that believed that. I think we're seeing a, a resurgence of labor in this country. You're seeing it around the world, whether it's, you know, pockets of Starbucks trying to unionize or, you know, McDonald's workers asking for $22 an hour. And by the way, if you were to, uh, to uh, inflation adjust uh, the minimum wage from 1968 when it was $1.60, it should be just inflation adjusted, it should be about $25 an hour. And going back to this inflation adjusted, last time I saw the uh, FDIC guarantee uh, deposits in 1980, it was 100,000, they moved it to 250, uh, you know, a decade or two later. From 1980 at $100,000, Today, they should have adjusted to inflation to be $400,000. Well, and, and you know, that's interesting that you mentioned the minimum wage. I, you said 60s, I think, or, but, but I'm thinking- it was $1.60. It should be $25 today. Well, going back to that, you know, those years and the baby boom, you know, we had a birth rate in the United States of whatever it was, high twos, three high twos, and then 2.5 or whatever. Well, our birth rate now is 1.6. Maybe I'm thinking like too long term. I know we have inflation or excuse me, immigration, which is is good for the labor market to, you know, ease some of that pressure. But the fact of the matter is there we're not really um, replacing our workforce as the workforce retires and ages out. 
in many cases, we're not replacing those workers with other skilled workers. So that's going to create upward price pressure on wages, I would think. I mean, I think I think we're seeing no, you're that. Right. It, it, the only thing that could stop the demographics that you could describe over lower birth rates over the last couple of decades and, and looks like going forward is, is immigration. That's, that might ease it a little bit, but we have a demographic change in this country. And as going back to whether this bear, bear market and bonds can last a long time, you know, I can see it lasting 10 years. I don't know, I, I, you know, after 10 years, you know, who knows what's gonna happen in life, but who knows after one year, but I think it's a much longer term period of time that we're gonna see this and deal with it. And, and once the pivot seekers, you know, decide to, to stop, uh, you know, proselytizing on TV, I think that a lot of these banks and a lot of these RIAs will get serious about their portfolios. I don't know any RIAs that made money last year, and they're very proud of the fact they're only down 8 or 10%. That's not the world I was raised in. You know, I was raised in a world of absolute returns. There's a lot of things they could have done to make money. Totally. You know, people don't believe we were up 33.6% last year, but just look well, at Morningside, we're, we're there. Well, top, top down, top down, George, I'm not an RA, but let's pretend I am. Let's say I'm a, I'm your RA friend. We're at the bar. We're having a beer. You know, obviously RASR, the ETF, but from a top-down portfolio construction perspective, the next, let's say the next 10 years or the next eight to 10 years, we're in a secular bear market. How does it change my portfolio construction? So that's a good, very good question. So we have, uh, we've constructed RISER, RISR, to be a negative 10-year duration. And that basically means that rates rise, the value rate rises. So um, what we've done is taken mortgage IOs, interest only pieces. So a mortgage is a principal as well as an interest. We have taken the uh, IO piece and mixed it with treasuries to make a negative 10-year duration. So when you have a negative 10-year duration, it's pretty easy to figure out how much of your positive duration, and most of the portfolios that I've seen out there are between six and eight years of duration, which is high duration. That's like that's basically the duration of a 10-year treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, and you try to, and th- with that, you can move down your duration to three years, two years, one year, where you're comfortable. If you still got a little bit of bullishness left in you, you, know, you might, might want to leave it at three years. You know, I have no bullishness left on me as far as the bond market is concerned, not least for the foreseeable future. Uh, And I don't think that. And by the way, as you pointed out, you know, the tight labor market is going to be the underlying problem that we're going to have with inflation going forward. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm not making a political judgment. But, you know, people aren't going to be working for nine dollars, ten dollars, twelve dollars. You can make you can make the political judgment either way. You can make I mean, you can you can blame. 10 different things for that issue. But your point is it's now part of the backdrop and it's going, unless, unless we wake up tomorrow and suddenly everybody wants to go to trade school and become a plumber or become a skilled electrician or engineer, this problem is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, the end period. Goodbye. It's just, it is. Uh, I think that that's correct. And, and I think what you're also going to see you know, so if if in fact you, you see the Fed backing off a little bit, you're going to see the market understanding that they're going to be very careful for the next six months. So all of a sudden, the, cur- the yield curve, which is inverted, is going to revert. So you're going to see a steepening of the yield curve, which you've seen over the last few days to, to a substantial amount, which means that 
we see inflation being a much longer term problem. That's just not a one or two year problem. And that's what I think you're going to see. That brings us a normalized yield curve where you have maybe 4% to, uh, on the two year and you're going to have 5% on the 10 year. So it's going to be a, uh, a positively sloped yield curve, which really is going to manifest that we've all admitted that's going to take a little bit longer to cure the inflation problem that we have in this country and in fact in this world. Okay. You know, I want to ask about interest rates in relation to treasuries and, you know, the two year, the 10 year, 30 year. Um, Cause again, I, I think maybe I've just the era in which I've grown up. Well, this is all mixed up in my head. <laughs> if there's a neutral inflation rate and a neutral 10 year rate and a neutral 30 year rate is inflation supposed to be lower than the 10 year. And then the 10 years, obviously, supposed to it be is. lower yielding than the 30 years. Is is. That, would that be normal? Yes. And that's basically known as real positive yields. So that'd be so. like what? Three, five, and six, 3% inflation, yeah. 5% 10-year, 6% 30-year. Would that be like what normal is? It would be. And well, what, I mean, when are we going to see normal? I feel like I could live to 100, age 150 and never see that side of circumstances. Well, let know? me give you an example. Let me give you an example <laughs> about my immigrant father. In 1978, he uh, he was doing well, and he bought a second house. Yeah, and he's very 1978, and he was very proud of his eight percent mortgage. A year and a half later, he was even f- prouder of his five year, twelve percent CD. Now you tell me where you can do that kind of an arbitrage today. It's, you don't see it. He had an eight percent mortgage, which we think is ridiculously and astronomically high. But he put his money in a 12-year bank CD, 12% return. Now, I'm not saying we've got to have that kind of relationship. Well, that, and that's what I'm saying, George. It's like, it, uh, I've never heard of that. Like, that's, I don't think that they're ever going to let me or let investors or let you. I don't think they're ever going to let us have that again, where, well, we where they're to- not going to tax us with inflation at a higher rate than they will give us. Yeah. Well, that's going to have account. to change as soon as we have these bubbles pop all over the place, tech bubble popping. You know, mismanaged uh, regional banks. Popping. Is that popping in real time? Do you see both those things popping right now? Venture capital, tech bubble, regional banking bubble. Are those all? I mean, venture capital obviously valuations are already down somewhat in the last yeah. year. I, I, I do. I don't quite see popping a bubble. I would call it a slow release of the air from the bubble. <laughs> That's giving me a ment. Okay, yeah, but I, I got an image of that. Maybe we can get our producer to add a sound effect. Um, but the, the, okay, so the air is slowly being released from the tech is. bubble. Is it that is. happening? Think, yeah, and I think that a great good part of it has been the way that Jerome Powell has spoken about things. He's been, you know, walking a very fine line, talking about two percent inflation again. Uh, at the same time, we're very tough on, you know, being careful that uh, we're dealing with a very tight labor market. So he's talking about a lot of things. He's gotten a little bit stronger, incrementally stronger over the last nine months. And I think that people have still not quite believed him. They still believe there's going to be a pivot. In fact, I've seen reports that they expect rate, rate cuts uh, later this year. Rate cuts later this year. Forget about stopping with rate cuts this year. So um, again, if he shows, if he does nothing, he shows, if he does nothing in, in March, that tells me he's got absolutely no confidence in our financial system. If he does 50 basis points, he has some confidence that this was a passing uh, problem with several regional banks, and let's move on. 
Well, you know, I think I have confidence in the sense that I think whatever happens, there will be a backstop or a bailout or whatever. I mean, I just, I think yeah. politically, I, that that's my assumption. Am, am I wrong in that assumption? No, I think, I think you, you, I think that's a very good possibility. But at the same time, that's going to put a lot of wood in the fire for future inflation. Mm. This is, you know, we, I see more of a stagflationary environment than a deflationary or inflationary robust economy. Right now, I mean, we got 3.7% unemployment. That was unheard of 25 years ago. Right. The 4.5 was normalized. That was good. It's okay to have a 4% unemployment, 4.2%, except for everything's gotten so highly politicized. Every movement, every, you know. You well, know, I mean, every- in fact, isn't, isn't there an unemployment rate that's like too low? Like we need a little bit of give and take in the labor market or it's yeah. hard. It, that actually constrains economic growth. And No and- doubt about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I, you know, seeing the move from 3.4, 3.5 to 3.7 to 4, I think is going to be fine for our economy. Moving interest, keeping interest rates at sustained level or maybe keeping them above inflation at some point is going to be okay. And I'm not talking about rate of change in inflation. I'm talking about the actual inflation rate. It's 6%. It's not talking about the rate of change, which we always hear part these economists parsing. It's got to be higher than inflation over time. And I hope, it do- I hope it's done over the next year and a half or two years. It's going to take some time to be able to get used to it. And it, by the way, I heard enough people t- saying that our economy be- will be crushed if the Fed moves rates up 200 basis points. Well, they moved up 400 basis points. And we're, we're going gangbusters. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, it's one of those things that, you know, if I say life's not fair, it's not fair, this, that or the other. I have personally felt that asset prices have been gamed or manipulated for so long. This may sound crazy. It's almost like I don't care about my own portfolio. I just want to like, I want the market to discover the price of things again. And I think that, and and, and not that I'm an altruist or whatever, but I think that would help middle-class people. If if, If the market could discover what the price of a house, a single family residence actually is, if the market could discover discover what the price of the S and P actually is, the market could discover what the price of a ten year bond yeah. actually is without being manipulated. I sincerely think that we would all be better off. I couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I get a lot of uh, asks from my kids who are in the early thirties and says, you know, yeah, you you boomers, you bought you bought you know shore houses and mountain homes for eleven raspberries. You know, we, we we got twelve guys in an apartment in New York City paying you know ten thousand dollars. Well, month. And yeah, but you went to college. For, you paid your way through college for three hundred dollars a semester tuition or whatever, right? Like it's it is it's kind of true. If if those if those goods and services have had an inflation rate of nine percent for the last forty years, it's like it just yeah, isn't. It, education is is college education has gotten totally out of hand and it's become become only for the wealthy despite the fact that universities say half of our endowment is spent on financial aid probably 100 percent should be spent on financial aid on some of these very there's this one university i won't mention the name but it's got a 12 billion dollar uh 12 billion dollar endowment and i asked my son but listen why don't we set up a, a small little uh, um, endowment for xyz he goes dad if this university was to pay for every single student, it still have a couple of billion dollars left for over the next 30 years. So you could pay for every single student going to school for 30 years and you'd still have $2 billion left. Mm. 
And by the way, we, we also let me guess their let me guess their endowments no longer taking donations, right? They have enough. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. The, you know, the, the three three times a day telephone calls still come in. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. You know, I, I, I love it. I, I love that just the the your reality based viewpoint and, and and the fact that you and your partners were contrarian a couple of years ago. And it, it does feel a little maybe you can um empathize with us. Sometimes I feel like I'm the one taking crazy pills. You know, if I underwrite a, if I underwrite a deal, I've even said this to my business partner before I underwrite a deal. And I said, am I taking crazy pills? Like, what am I missing here? How does this make sense? And number one, you know, interest rates being manipulated, like they're not necessarily market prices. And then other actors in the market may have a different calculus. So I, I love that you all, you know, you, you're using simple logic though, because when when you talk about the theory and the thesis behind Riser and behind the strategy, it actually, to me, just sounds like common sense. But how, I, I guess, you, you know, you mentioned it's not that hard to he- hedge interest rates. What is it, you know, what should banks be doing? What should family offices be doing? How do, how do aside from buying Riser, and I'm not telling anybody not to buy Riser, but aside from doing that, could you walk us through how should a family office, how should an institutional investor or even just a regular high net worth investor, how should they be hedging against rising interest rates with their own portfolio? Let me begin by saying that it's really critical that these family offices, and there's some very brilliant family offices out there and some RIAs, brilliant RIAs out there, uh, they know they have to reduce the duration of their fixed income portfolio, specifically when the Fed is sticking a finger in your eye and telling you that's what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) One thing they should do, there's a lot of ways of doing it. They can do it through option-based strategies. They can do, and but the option-based strategies that exist out there have negative carry. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, they have decay. That's an issue they have to look at. Again, the upside and the downsides are much greater. Some some option-based strategies were making 60, 70% last year. Uh, and George, but- I mean, conceptually, I'm, I'm not a finance whiz, okay? So take everything with a grain of salt, but conceptually, like just the costs, transaction costs, and even just the uh, yeah. the headache of dealing with options or whatever, that's why with my own portfolio, I just decrease duration, and I'm like, you know, like yeah. I, and that's the way, and that's a way of doing it. Look, the option-based strategies are, are, you know, you have to get very sophisticated people, and they are out there. Then there's the uh, strategies that have are holding, you know, tips. I'm not sure why you pay anybody to hold tips for you. And then there's those <laughs> strategies that are buying what they perceive equities that are that would do very well in an inflationary environment, whether it's mining stocks, commodity stocks. And that's another way of doing it. The problem with the latter is that you're going to have a high core. If the market decides to go down 10, 20%, every stock's going down. Well, and like REITs, for instance, I'm a big REIT guy, but those are very volatile, right? They are a pretty good hedge against inflation, but you're going to go on a wild ride, right? You are. I have a chart. Uh, I'll send it to you after our, after our uh, discussion here today about how Riser would have been the perfect hedge for REITs over the last year and a half. And you wouldn't have lost any money. REITs haven't done that well. I don't have to tell you that over the last period of time. But yeah, over the last 30 years, it's been a great investment. But mm-hmm. now we've got a QT. We've got a different environment. Nobody wants to accept that. Or if you want to accept that. 
and they're going to have to at some point. So is, is now, I mean, and, and then by the way, this SV, the SVP SVPB it, uh, um, fiasco. I can tell you, there's got to be regional banks out there that are real worried that people are going to take a much closer look at them. So if 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 I bring conceptual question, whether I buy riser itself, or maybe there's a way family office or institution can use a similar kind of strategy to do something similar. Um, am I purchasing bonds and then another security or something that's no, you? You're buying an ETF, which okay. is daily liquidity backed by IOs, AAA, by the way, Fannie, Freddie, Ginny, we only deal with the AAA agency. Uh, IOs and mixed with treasuries to adjust the duration to where we think it makes sense, which is a minus 10, minus nine year duration. And you buy that ETF. The the IO market, by the way, is highly liquid. Uh, so that's not an issue. That's why we can get out of it. You know, you so how it. much how much yield, I guess, how much, uh, you know, of like the, what's the cost to bringing the duration down to zero? Like how much of the gross, you know, long only yield are you? So it depends. Out? If yeah, it, it depends what how big your portfolio is, mm-hmm. but you know, tenure minus tenure duration is pretty easy to figure out if you got plus tenure duration. So you buy hundred percent against it, you're down to zero, uh, or whatever ratios you look at. So that's an easy, easy call. Uh, but I I think that what individuals or RAs, family offices should be looking at is a certain percentage of their uh, fixed income portfolio should be in riser. And by the way, it's also uh, has extremely low correlation to equities. We have a, a long short equity firm uh, call us and said, "You know what? I just bought some of your some of your riser because you know you're not correlated. I'm worried about the stock market." And it made sense to me. Plus, he's getting a seven percent dividend. The reason he's getting some, we started out with a three or four percent dividend, but as rates got higher, we were a- able to mm-hmm. you know leg into higher uh, interest bearing uh, mortgages. You know, they got up to six percent or maybe seven percent. Bought them at a discount, and we we're able to produce a seven percent dividend. I'm not sure where you can get no correlation to bonds or little correlation to bonds, no correlation or little correlation to equity, seven percent dividend, and you're protected from your house burning down. You know, you have home insurance. Why wouldn't you have rising rate insurance? I can, I, I don't. Am I being a little too simple and maybe too? self-centered about our product probably no no it's all right no I, I i you know when i have a guest on if you don't talk your book i'll be disappointed i mean that we expect you but i have to imagine that this etf is you know your timing you know again i don't lucky genius good timing whatever we want to call it but it's it has to have had some serious traction in the past our our, our timing was very very good as far as bringing this etf as a offering to the community. The community was not totally ready for it because they didn't believe in the interest rate rise. I believed in it because I knew that at some point in life, you had to have inflation lower than your returns. You had to have that 8% mortgage and a 12% bank CD at some point, not quite Gravity, that. with a gravitational pull, or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, and so, and so the market wasn't ready for it. The market didn't believe it. The pivot seekers were crawling all over CNBC and Bloomberg. And, you know, the people listened to these guys. You know, I'm thinking about having a, a, a ETF that goes against what they say in the fixed income markets. <laughs> well, George, I mean, how long does the market... I, how long do you have to wait until you and your team get to take a victory lap. You know, I mean, you're, you're basically telling me 
after you returns last year that the world is still full of 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 doubters and I am. I am. And 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 I'm not sure how long they can wait it out. But again, if you look at some of these banks and you look at their percentage of securities over 10%, I was stunned. Andy, I got there's a chart I'll send you after this that these regional banks have higher uh, percentage of securities over 10 years than Silicon Valley Bank. They have higher uninsured deposits than Silicon Valley Bank. This is, you know, now that they had the, they had a $42 billion run in one day because people needed money. Now, I don't think people need money in the, these other regional banks uh, as badly as they did, you know, uh, with the private equity and the venture so capital. It's, it's like, do these banks even have a, chief risk officer or portfolio manager. I, I just don't understand the logic that would make you say, uh, the 30 year is yielding 4%. Uh, let's buy a bunch of 30. I mean, it's just, Wait, I don't, they, 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 I don't know if they do. Well, they do, uh, in, in, in theory, but, um, you know, we were at a conference in Charleston in December, myself and Dean Smith and, uh, we were stunned. These are highly sophisticated uh, money managers. All said, well, my research team says we peaked in rates or my research team sees a pivot in 2023. I'm not saying that's a stupid opinion, you know, or an uninformed opinion, but it was amazing to me that despite the Fed signaling what they're going to be doing, they still had this, this way of managing money through hope. And that's what, I, so that's, if you're asking what I'm seeing and why we can't take a victory lap, because people are still managing on hope. And I think that's one of the, uh, we can take a victory lap on our returns, but yeah. we can't take a victory lap on really convincing people. Well, you know, maybe I'm thinking too, I'm too backwards thinking, but I would say the point in time where we are now, I am more agnostic. I'm not arguing with your point of view, but I am more agnostic in the sense that um, you know, when inflation is at 6% or when interest rates are at 5%, it's more plausible to me that they can go up or they can go down. Yeah, when yields are at 2% or 1.7%, it's just not really plausible to me that they can go lower. Yeah. So well, that's really what I can't, I can't really get inside of that logic where you're saying and yields are- And that's hindsight, you know, but there were people when we were at 1.6, 1.7% who thought we were going to go lower. There were people. As yeah, maybe a little bit, but what possible, you know, it's just, it's risk and reward. How much, yeah. how much juice is there really to squeeze at, when you're at 1.7 yield? You know, that's, that's the logic I never understood was the, not that it couldn't go lower, but just the risk reward. Now, if you're at five, if you're, whether interest rates, inflation, you're at five or six, it's just more plausible to me that it can go up or it can go down, you know, but it just felt to me like we were really, unless we t- went full Japan, it just felt to me like we were at uh, a floor or ceiling, depending on however you look at it. But yeah, well, I, I mean that's 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 logical, I, I would say. But let's let's look at a different way. You know, we were talking about demographics, we were talking about tight labor market, we were talking about the reunionization of America in many respects. <clears throat> we both talked about that. So let's talk about just sustained inflation for a while or interest rates being sustained for a period of time maybe they don't go to eight or nine percent but maybe they do go a little higher maybe they do go lower but you know that's like saying the value of your house goes up you know value of your house goes down 
you're not going to change the insurance, uh, uh, you know, premiums uh, or, or how much you insure your house for because it's gone down $50,000. You're going to keep it at whatever level you have. And you're going to pay that every year. It's house insurance from your house burning, being swept away. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you can still live in the house. And it's okay that you're not, you know, making that extra bit or two. So I look at it as, as an insurance policy with 7% dividend. It's a pretty good insurance policy that pays, pays you 7%. So let me add, and I know we're running short on time, but I, I love that this product, I love products. You know, it's it's the marketing guy in me. I'm really a marketing guy in heart. It just happens to be in finance now. You're but a I municipal love- bond consultant, okay? Yeah, that's right. No, I'm. I, by the way, any regional banks or any bank at all. I'm, uh, I'm going to put it to you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Shoot me an email, I'll consult, you know, 200 grand an hour, whatever, uh, whatever the, is a fair rate. But talking about I, I, as a marketer, I love that this product has a very clear, simple thesis. Uh, and then how that thesis plays out. It's like, if this is the right bet or, you know, you're buying insurance for this circumstance. And if it's circumstance pays out, it's going to pay off handsomely. And as you say, it's paying a dividend to you in the meantime. Do you and your team have any other theses that you believe that you might be testing you know other other products other types of products like this that are built around you know specific ideas specific bets are there plans to sort of add to the etf family we do we have a fixed income model that we we are talking to numerous institutions about with 23 subsectors of etfs from everything from high-grade corporate to REITs to treasuries to riser being in part of that fixed income model and that has done very well um, as well. It hasn't done as well as Visor on its own. We also are, you know, not believers in being fully long or fully short anything. We, again, we believe in diversification, lowering your duration, and uh, we hope to be coming out with uh, AI, machine learning, long, short income dividend fund at some point this year as well. So, you know, that has also, again, numbers going backtracking. Uh, Backtesting numbers, I'm not a big believer, but backtesting has done very well on that. So we hope to get that. But we're focusing right now on the fixed income model portfolios and, and Riser being part of that. Or look at Riser, how that would fit into your portfolio on a 10 or 15% uh, basis to reduce that duration that you have to protect yourself from, from interest rates while getting a 7% dividend. I guess kind of, I don't know. It's Am I, am I the one that's crazy? No, no, you're not. You know, like I said, I wake up and and half the time when I'm talking about this stuff, I think I'm the one taking crazy pills. But as a marketer, I would say, I think Folio Beyond, Riser, you all are in a good spot because you have the uh, economic news every day going out there and doing your marketing for you, right? Yes. And <laughs> your thesis can play a, play out in real time on the front page of the Wall Street <clears throat> Journal and and so I, again, I, I just love it when a product has a clear thesis and then a clear mechanism for that to reward investors. I think just that simplicity, something as a marketer, but also as a finance guy that really appeals to me. And so that being said, George, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices and advisors, where can they go to learn more about Folio Beyond and about Riser? They can go to our website or they can go to, to just you know contact me. One thing what we pride ourselves on is getting back to every single question high net, low net individual uh, and to discuss our product. You know, we respond immediately to everybody and we're happy to talk about them. Uh, so you just put RISR, you just Google it and you're going to get a bunch of information on it, a bunch of charts. We'll go to foliobeyond.com 
And that also gives you a full array of everything from prospectus to, uh, to information on Riser. And, uh, uh, but, you know, people like to talk to people and I'm, I'm happy to sit down and talk to anybody. And I've, we've gotten quite a few phone calls, you know, from my net with individuals who aren't major investors to institutions who are thinking about saying, can I, can I buy 50 million of this at one shot? I mean, yeah, you can, you can, you know, but that we haven't, we haven't quite seen that guy buying that $50 million piece yet. But this is something that, you know, in the, in the days of the, the of IOS and Shields, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, they were slinging it around in those kind of numbers. So it's a liquid market. We've just managed to put this into a liquid market. We managed to put a hedge fund that that hedges your interest rates rise in a, in a liquid ETF. And I think that's what the, what, what the what totally. success has been. Yeah, no, and it's it's scalable. And as I said, I think you're going to have a lot of uh, good marketing fodder, uh, not only with Silicon Valley Bank, but just in the next couple of years. So, uh, George, I can't thank you enough for for coming on the show today. Uh, I'll be sure to link to both the Folio Beyond website as well as I'm going to link to this ETF riser, the ETF page. Maybe I'll even put a nice little chart, show you return from last year. Um, That'd be great. That, <laughs> to basically say, hey, that's a little victory lap for you. We put in the chart in the show notes. That's that's going to be your victory lap. Thank you. And, and, and what I, I would you know I would concur with you from what we said at the beginning. This uh, Silvergate. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, I think, really has the potential of exposing some problems out there. So, you know, we'll we'll see. Uh, I don't see any more runs on the banks, but to a great extent, these three banks were a canary in a coal mine, and now people should know they can't go much further. Totally. Canary in the coal mine. You heard it here first on the Alternative Investment Podcast. George, thanks again for joining the show today. Eddie, thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.